Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Welcome back to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. We are so excited that you have joined us again in this new season, season three. We are excited with some of our interviews this season that deal with so many different topics around sex and faith, also our bodies and grief and how that affects us, as well as how different relationships work, like with polyamory and things like this. So I think it's going to be a really interesting season. Also, uh, we are hoping that we can hear some stories from you all. If you are reframing a story in your life, and would like to share it on our podcast, we would love to hear from you. You could go to our website, www.reframingourstories.com and go to the podcast tab, and then you can find a form where it says, share your story. Uh, We have different topics that we are concentrating on at the moment. And if your story matches within that, then please fill out the form and we would love to contact you. If you have another story that's not on that form, the topic that's not on that form, just stay tuned because we will include others as well. So if you have been enjoying this podcast, we would love for you to leave a review. That helps people find us. And it also helps us know how we're doing and what needs to change and what you appreciate and what, you know, maybe you want less of. So we want to be able to reach our listeners in that way and also leave us a rating and subscribe and share with a friend. Today, we will be starting off with a wonderful human who I got to know who is definitely a healer and works within helping around trauma through the use of yoga. I'm really happy to introduce you to uh, Miss Joanne Spence, and I hope you enjoy the show. Over and over again, I'm reminded that my body holds onto the messages I received growing up. Trauma of any sort can make a home inside of our bodies and unless we tend to it, can stay and change who we are. This is why I am so grateful for people like Joanne Spence, who dedicates her life's work to trauma and the body. Joanne is a mental health professional and practitioner of yoga, and is the author of the book, Trauma-Informed Yoga, a toolbox for therapists, 47 simple practices to calm, balance, and restore the nervous system. Her work has helped many people dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, depression, ADHD, trauma, and insomnia. She is taught in various settings such as schools, churches, prisons, hospitals, and sometimes on a street corner. I had the luxury of meeting her and we instantly connected. Joanne is the type of person who you can feel at ease with and who meets you where you are at. But when you leave her, are a different person. I felt this after talking with her for an hour. Joanne, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's so lovely that you're here. And I just want to say, I mean, I said this in the introduction, just the first time I met you, I feel like just within our our first conversation, I felt already transformed (laughs) by just being in your presence. So 
I am grateful that you are going to spend some time with us today. I'm really honored to be here. So you have over 35 years experience as a mental health professional. What have you learned in that time about trauma? Hmm. Ah, thing or two. <laughs> just just that like I don't, three that things. I don't, yeah. And you know, sometimes it's the, it's true of the more, the longer that you're practicing and doing things, the, the less you know, or the less certain you are about that, about life really. Mm-hmm. But working in mental health has helped me to really lean into what my own practices need to look like for me mm-hmm. and what I'm triggered by and how I need to care for myself so that I can be present with you, with the people in front of me, whether they're in the acute phase of mental illness or whether it's a friend having a bad day. I've been able to learn what my own triggers are. And in doing that, it helps me to figure out how to address them. Maybe not in the moment, but I can bracket that in my mind and have that awareness piece. There's a little gap between when something's arising now because I have more awareness because of some of the practices I've been doing over the last 20 years for the yoga piece. Mm -hmm. And that's because yoga is about self-care and self-awareness and has a lot to say around how we care for ourselves and what it means to be aware and, and what that means for our mental health. And I think that that awareness on a broader level is just helping me to be a better human being. Mm-hmm. So it's helped me also to dive a little deeper in when I think about trauma and the some of the books that have been profoundly influential. I like Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. And when he talked about trauma being stored in the body it was like a light bulb mm-hmm. it wasn't the first time that it, that had ever sort of come across my my radar but in his explanations and the compelling stories and some of the science it was like i had a visceral reaction and probably because it wasn't that long ago probably you know he wrote the book in 2014 so that's only been out for eight years so it was probably a year or so after it came out or maybe even the year it came out that I actually heard him speak and then read the book that I was I was a ways on my journey and it helped me make sense and give me language for some of the things I've been experiencing in from my from my own troubled childhood and the dysfunctions of that and the things that I um, had been working through in therapy for a long time it sort of gave me words to make sense of and to understand some of the science behind what was going on and it wasn't just it wasn't just in my head as sometimes we're fond of saying it was these really were things that resided in my body mm-hmm. so that's some of the thing and and that i'm not anybody special that that this is a universal experience mm-hmm. and i and i guess i would add that um when i wrote my book of trauma-informed yoga, a toolbox for therapists. I handed in that manuscript the week of the lockdown when the world went crazy. So I wrote it Mm pre-pandemic and I wrote about trauma not being rare as we once thought it was. Right. But now um, have the book coming out in in pandemic times, Mm -hmm. I feel more confident that we all identify with and understand that we've been through a collective trauma together. 
Oh yeah. And doesn't mean that we're all traumatized or all in need of trauma treatment, but we've had this universal experience that for many of us from time to time has overwhelmed our capacity to cope in this moment because we've all experienced it in very different ways. Mm -hmm. So two things that's my thought. Well, two things came up to me for me when you said this. One, just the last part with like the collective trauma and how we experience things differently. But recently where I'm from, um, we had a teacher strike that happened in March and we didn't have school and we didn't know when we were going to go back because they were trying to reach an agreement and different things. And during that process, uh, my husband and I like shut down. <laughs> like We had this moment of like, why do we feel like we can't do anything? And then we just looked at each other. We're like, is this PTSD from when we went on the lockdown? Because it resembled so much. I mean, you know, it was different, but just that sense of uncertainty that we had just, you know, we were experiencing again, having the kids home, having to change the way that we do things. It just brought back all of the feelings from when we went on the initial lockdown. Yeah. But then, like you said in the very beginning, what I appreciate is that you talk about it has helped you recognize where you need to work on your own triggers in order to be present with people. And I think that one of the things that we often don't realize that in order for us to kind of be effective educators or to be effective therapists or to be effective, like, for instance, when I was in seminary doing ministry, it's like you have to know your stuff in order to be able to be present because everyone has triggers and we never know when we may be triggered until we like do profound work to help ourselves when those situations might arise. Yes. So insights and what good insights. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that you said that. So what made you want to pair the teaching foundations of yoga with your practice as a mental health practitioner? I think that that came out of my sense of, of, of sensing, sensing things in my body that I tried so hard um, in my own journey of healing to talk my way to health, to read my way to health. Mm-hmm. I never met a mental health book that I didn't think, well, maybe this could be it. And I, I still read um, a lot. But it's more than that, and it's more than the cognitive. I mean, I think a little bit of knowledge about our neuroanatomy goes a long way in helping me to understand that the breath is a direct access to our nervous system, and that's all connected to how trauma resides in our body. It was uh, that sense of, oh, some things that happened to me a very, very long time ago, some that I remember and some that I do not, are affecting me here in the present as if they had just happened. Mm-hmm. And there's this stuckness that is beneath conscious awareness. It's not something that I can control. Mm-hmm. And so when I looked at that from a yogic lens, yoga has a lot to say about how we breathe and how gentle movement and breath work shifts things in our nervous system. And it works mind, body, and spirit. So that it works in a 
like the gross anatomy, the, the physical body, it works in our emotions and, um, and the more subtleties of uh, what we might identify as more of the spiritual body. So I was feeling those things. And so again, going back to Bessel van der Kolk's work, when, when I was reading, you need to move to heal, and he was promoting non-drug interventions, and, and certainly not, not to the exclusion of drug interventions, but body-based therapy that's not about um, medications and, and uh, pill taking. And that really resonated with me, given that I had been a yoga teacher for so many years. It helped that he named yoga as one of mm. the disciplines, along with things like dance movement therapy and trauma therapy and uh, different forms of massage and somat the, the sort of somatic work of things like Feldenkrais and mm. um, cranial sacral therapy are just all really, really powerful things that we haven't always known how to categorize or quantify what it is that they do. He was someone of note. And, and just in case your readers aren't familiar with the book, The Body Keeps the Score, it has been in the top 100 books on Amazon since it was published in 2014. And that yeah. is extraordinary for a book an, in mental health. About. Yeah, it's an excellent book. Yeah. So, so I'm excited by that shift in cultural understanding and interest. So what do you think about, because I feel like sometimes when, when the suggestion of you have to move to heal, I feel like there's still a sense of hesitancy for people to enter into that space of either going to yoga. I mean, yoga's gotten a lot more popular by even doing something of dance movement or art therapy or different things like this. Where do you think that sense of hesitancy comes from for people to enter into those spaces? <laughs> How much time do we have? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is a long form. Uh, I mean, I, I have my suspicions of, um, you know, going back to Descartes and probably before that of this separation, I, you know, thinking and mm -hmm. I think therefore I am. Um, and that sometimes our faith and our faith traditions, uh, our interpretation of that can play into um, a decreasing value of the body. When I, from a different lens, look at scripture and things like the Bible, I have more reason of looking at the body as a very positive thing and mm -hmm. of God creating it and all of it, including thought and emotions and, and that I have a more elevated sense because of my faith, but that's not how everybody sees it. Mm -hmm. When I say we need to move, to, when I say that, I don't know, you know, Bessel's work can speak for itself. But when I say that, that could mean as simple as standing up, taking breaks from your computer, looking out to the horizon, taking a walk outside, walking around the garden or around your favorite tree or the block and connecting in some way that moves the parts. Now, of course, I think also that a practice like yoga is very helpful and um, beneficial because I've been studying and teaching that for the last 20 years. But my understanding of yoga also includes the standing up from your computer and going outside and taking a walk. So mm -hmm. it's fairly encompassing of all sorts of movement and that our bodies were designed to to need movement. 
Mm-hmm. So my diving into anatomy has also just in learning what it means to have a body that has muscles and tendons and ligaments and fascia and how they all interplay together. I, I didn't learn that in school growing up. I opted out of science really early and I missed out on that piece in my education. And it was only through uh, becoming a yoga teacher and learning anatomy in that context that I started to not feel so ignorant <laughs> about what happened from you know my head down. Mm-hmm. So that's some of my, some things that I, that have contributed to, to where I'm at in that space. Do you think we're more at risk in the modern society of um, uh, holding on to trauma because of the fact that we're so reliant on technology and the way that we disassociate constantly by looking at our devices and being engaged fully on a computer screen. Can I say hell yes? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can say that. Well, we know that we know that it's not a secret that our devices that that in many ways make our lives better are also designed to suck us in and to keep us there and to sell us things and make us have it as a habitual as an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, that should be terrifying and disturbing to us as a culture and yet the thought of giving that up mm-hmm. is a lot of us our jobs wouldn't even be sustainable how would we talk to anybody how would we communicate with our work teams or da 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 and at the same time it, there's great tools that can help us to move more and to uh, be in this space of breathing and connecting and remembering to do that and getting up and at the same time, interfacing with the screen can be the barrier to moving our bodies and keeping us sucked in, distracted, overwhelmed. And it's up to us as the people that are paying for those devices that are still, it's about digging deep in to realize the agency that we have. Mm-hmm. So our control, I mean, there's so many things in life we cannot control. Right. But this piece we, we do control to the extent of, as I said, we bought it, paid for it. <laughs> We're getting up in the mornings, probably listening to the sound of the alarm on the phone or connecting with the people that we care about, doing some really good things, mm-hmm. only to be sucked in and distracted within minutes of doing that because we forgot what we came for. I, mean, I don't know if that ever happens to you. I mean, like daily, just yeah. every moment. <laughs> I'm like, wait, why did I get on this again? <laughs> it does that. So, and so we're having practices around things that help us to remain in control and remain having this um, agency that we can, in fact, not engage as much or that we can make different choices and and building routines and practices that help us to lean in to that agency is really important. And mm-hmm. I think will help us to mitigate some of this thing that I, you know, I'm, I'm disturbed about, but that doesn't mean I'm giving out my cell phone anytime soon. Right. I'm just making rules and boundaries about that. And it, even though I teach wellness and yoga and mindfulness, it's not any easier for for me to do those things. I think, you know, the struggle is real, Mm -hmm. 
but acknowledging that the struggle is real and developing skills, practices that help to intervene, to mitigate, I think is really essential. I, the other day went, decided to go for a walk and not bring my device because normally I go for a walk. I listen to another podcast or I listen to a book on tape or just music. And I was like, what would happen if I didn't bring my device? (laughs) And so I was like, just amazed by the beauty of birds singing, just like this simple pleasure. I was like, I haven't like spent a moment to intentionally listen to birds singing or like the breeze, the sound of the breeze. And I discovered my own thoughts (laughs) this time of walking and being present and something I had been struggling with, like creatively came to mind and I was able to solve a problem. It's like, who knew? Yeah, (laughs) It was like a great reminder. Yes. So then how do we, how do you suggest then as a society to live into our fullest potential that we remind ourselves to take breaks and have these boundaries, like to get into bodies? Like what, how do you visualize that? Or what is it that we can do to make that happen? There are a plethora of tools out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for one person, maybe it's sticky notes on your computer screen. For another person, maybe it is the app that sends you reminders to get up from your screen or to less engage. This is a little bit of an oxymoron, right? That you mm-hmm. might be using new technology in order to break from it. Uh, I, w- I say whatever it takes because there is no lack of people trying to sell you things that mm-hmm. will that will help to build new habits. And that's really in its most general form, what we're talking about is we want to increase the habits that are Mm life-giving and sustainable to our own health and well-being. therefore increasing the health and well-being of those around us and decrease the habits that are destructive and pulling us down and not building us up. Mm-hmm. It's there's so much more to it than that, but I think it's at its simplest form, it's doing one of those two things. And it's knowing yourself what will work for me. And if that means trying six things and spending 20 or 30 bucks on a workbook or an getting a free app and not to the point I wouldn't recommend like going there and getting all the things at once because then we get paralysis we get a little bit of paralysis oh I don't know which one to start it's like what catches your attention and gives you a little bit of excitement like maybe that will work give it a try Mm -hmm. and we know from the science that it's practice over time and if I thought it was once a week I would say that and have written about it and Maybe, you know, <laughs> we would all be different, but it's usually daily practice over time, mm-hmm. even if it's for 10, 15 minutes. And it's also at least a 21 day thing, maybe longer to rewire the brain mm-hmm. to get those new neuro, those rewiring those um, neuro pathways. And there's plenty to read and understand about what's actually happening, but you don't have to understand that in order to take these small steps because the practice or the tool that, that is the most effective is the one that you do. Right. And that works for you. I think there's often, often people, 
like, you know, they like to sell us these ideas of like, this is the best way to do things. And we feel like we have to take those on. And I think, again, what we have to do in these spaces is re I mean, this is part of reconnecting to our body, right? Is listening to ourselves of like, what is it that really speaks to us? What, what is it that makes us feel good in our own bodies? Because what works for my friend is not going to necessarily work for me. And I think that's where people sometimes also struggle is having that sense of awareness. Yeah. There isn't one size fits all. And sometimes it will take a little trial and error. And if somebody is guaranteeing you something (laughs) that Mm -hmm. this is the way I've done a lot of research, I don't know that that's, that's true. It is dependent on what you know about yourself, like you just said, and, and sometimes giving something, trying it out seeing what the, what are the results? What's the effect? How do you feel when you do that? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you since all of this stuff, right? We have intersections and all this stuff is combined. So from your work within mental health and yoga, what can you glean about us as sexual beings that you have discovered? Mm, Such a beautiful question. Well, if we're present in our body, we can enjoy a healthy expression of our sexuality. And if we're not, it's pretty hard to do that. Mm. So having practices that keep us present, that allow us to cut down the distraction and to be present in our body is the beginning of that knowing yourself and being able to be vulnerable into uh, into in enjoying our own who we are as a um, as people, and certainly really key to being sexually active in in partnership and the vulnerability of sex. We need those tools in order to know who we are, and the being present and not being distracted is a is the when I say the initial the early things that we need in our body in order to connect to somebody other some and to another in such a vulnerable way. And that's been part of my own healing journey that took so much longer than, mm-hmm. than I ever thought it would. But it, sometimes it, it's also putting together pieces of sometimes past trauma that has a layering effect. And it's not like you can say, well, I'm dedicating the next six months to therapy in order to deal with something that happened to me a very long time ago, there might be a piece that you can address at a certain life stage. And then at a different life stage or a different milestone, um, something else might arise that was not come had not come to the surface before. And so there's also this sense of ongoing work in order to stay present and accounted for in your body. And I think that's the best hope we have Mm -hmm. of being in a place of presence and vulnerability. So that's, that's where I've, I've learned from hard earned experience from, from my own story. Mm-hmm. What do you say to the people then who consider vulnerability a weakness? Oh, they should read Brene Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Just, here's Brene Brown. Go have a coffee. <laughs> so um, if you read, um, I found um, Brene's work in Dare to Lead. Mm-hmm. 
she summarizes a lot of her other work. So it was a nice entry point if people haven't read Brene Brown before, because she addresses this very point in talking um, or working in, in a military context mm-hmm. of this perception of vulnerability being weakness. And that's certainly a context that um, that we might know the use of the of the word vulnerability, but we're not talking about a vulnerable system in that way. We're talking about vulnerability as in um, transparency and uh, awareness of self and not, um, she says, not armoring up, but having, being open-hearted, open hand, I've added an open-handed to that. And she unpacks that so beautifully, but the only way, because she tells the story and I, I won't be able to do it justice, but I think the summer, summary of some of that is that the only way that we can demonstrate great courage, it begins with great vulnerability, is a step of being willing to be seen mm-hmm. and that we're all a work in progress in our ability to own that and to see ourselves in, in that way and to have that kindness and compassion for our, ourselves is the way that we're able to then sit with people as they contend with their own vulnerability. That takes great courage to do that. And she Mm -hmm. gives some beautiful examples in a a military context Mm -hmm. uh, of working with people in the military. And that was was really powerful stuff for Mm -hmm. me. So Mm -hmm. don't armor up. Well, when we do, that's the awareness piece is is being aware of, oh, I'm putting on a protective layer right now. Mm-hmm. What's that about? Sort of mm-hmm. getting curious takes some work to be able to get to that curiosity point and not just shut down, armor up, mm-hmm. put your boxing gloves on. And that's probably been necessary somewhere in our in our past mm-hmm. to do those things. Mm-hmm. The threat was real. Yeah. But when that is no longer the situation, we can sort of peel away some of those layers and allow ourselves to to be seen. It takes great courage to do that. I think it's fascinating because I feel like everyone just truly like their deepest desire is to be seen, to be fully seen. And it's also the thing that scares the living daylights out of us to be fully seen. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Are there moments when you've worked with people and their body addressing trauma where you have noticed a transformation happening and what has that looked like? Yeah. Yeah, there has. Um, when somebody's, I, I, for 10 years, I worked in an inpatient psychiatric facility where people were in the acute phase of psychiatric illness. So, so it was like having my own lab, so to speak, because I was the only yoga therapist at the time. I think an example that perhaps your um, listeners might relate to is anxiety because it's so common. Mm-hmm. If you think of somebody that might actually have a mood disorder and and they're experiencing a panic attack. And there's all sorts of physical manifestations of somebody having a panic attack. They um, usually, their body gets a bit jumpy and they're looking around um, for a place to leave. There's sort of that jumping out of their skin sense, their pulse elevators, it gets elevated. Sometimes they get a little flushed. It, and it, I haven't had a full-blown panic attack, but I've seen, I've seen people in it. And mm-hmm. 
it can mimic looking like you're having a heart attack or you know having some major health event when you're in a, in a psychiatric facility it's it's okay to assume that that probably is a panic attack so an example we i one time i was getting ready for group and someone said they wanted to participate and um, they're sitting in a chair getting ready to be part of the chair yoga group and i saw them get agitated like just like there was a switch hmm. and they sort of got up to run and as they moved from the space i just asked the group for a moment if they would just give me a moment and i followed the person and we just sort of moved off to the side where we could i said could are you okay no and i just thought well and then i'm just going to go with what my observation my my eyes are telling me are you feeling anxious yes would you like to take a few minutes and try something okay you know it's like <laughs> i'm not sure about this but we took a few minutes and they let me just talk them through and i slowed my voice down and that you'll notice i mean i i do speak a little bit faster in real life but when i'm teaching there's a prosody and and there's also um, the tone of the voice so if we understand things about the vagus nerve and the response of the nervous system we can use tone of voice the muscles of the face and and while it's okay to make eye contact sometimes there's a softening of the gaze but there's a mm. sort of a verbal tell me what you're sensing in your body would you like to try something and we just went on to try some some breathing and it just it didn't stop the panic attack but it brought them down enough notches that they weren't crawling out of their skin anymore mm -hmm. and that's about the most you can hope for in a in a non-drug intervention on the spot in the moment but I saw it happen so many times time and time again it kept bringing me back because it's not an easy space to work in and I thought what is it what is it about these practices? Because usually we would, and it's generally true that yoga is slow medicine, right? Mm -hmm. Little daily practice over time. Let me repeat that a few more times. <laughs> and, and yet at the same time, there are these moments where you see something happen in the moment and something shifts inside someone when it's the first time they've tried it. Better to try this when they're not in crisis and to teach when someone's mm. not in crisis, it's going right. to settle more in the nervous system, but it still works in that moment when somebody's going, yes, I would like to try something. They're still exercising that agency. They're tapping in the way to get into that nervous system that's dysregulated and it's upregulated. It needs to downregulate. It's using a sort of those more clinical terms they can feel the effect of a breath practice, for example, even just nasal breathing or something that has slightly more complexity that will drop them just if they're at a nine and a half, maybe it will drop them to a nine to head back towards a place of equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I've done that many times. It's not my, it's not my standard MO because it's just not where yoga practice shines its most but occasionally i'll find myself in those positions or if there's somebody freaking out on an airplane it's mm. usually i'm sitting next to them and i'm the only person that can intervene at that <laughs> moment. <laughs> it's 
like that's by great happened. design you end up happened. I was like oh is it me <laughs> but noticing somebody's great distress and and when they say yes would you are you okay no would you like some help yes that that, that that's an invitation mm-hmm. yeah and using that skill set of being able to see and use that prosody is it's like watching a miracle happen and it's mm. it's a beautiful thing i feel like another something that kind of puts us against ourselves is the fact that now we're we want instant gratification and we want quick fixes or just take this pill you know and it seems to me like just from what i'm hearing from you and what i know in my own life that we have to be okay with a process and going slowly. And it's almost like being in relationship with our own healing. Mm -hmm. I think it is that. Yeah. Yes. And so how do we help people who, whose relationships that they know, many people grow up with relationships that aren't healthy, that are not a place that they want to spend time with. So how have you kind of transformed that for people to stay with that relationship of healing? I think it's in our DNA, our deep desire to to be well. Mm. But sometimes we habituate to not being well. Mm -hmm. And I came to yoga from not being well for two years after a car accident. I was Mm. in chronic pain. I shifted from the acute physical trauma of the accident to being in therapy thinking oh it's just the pain of healing to pain setting in where if you ask me where I was feeling pain it was sort of globalized I couldn't really tell you where Mm, yeah Um, and when that progressed to depression Mm. and interfering with my sleep it was a wake-up call of I need help and it's hard to ask for help and yeah. maybe even harder when you self-diagnose and you're in the field of mm-hmm. professions and mis, misinformation of thinking that you don't have mental health issues. It's, it's hilarious now. It, it wasn't to think that I could believe that, but I think that was a myth that I held dear. Mm-hmm. I've got all this training in um, how could I be depressed? Well, of course you could be depressed. If you're human, you can be depressed. Yeah. So when you grab onto that self-knowledge and if it, I, I think in this deep desire to be well, like it takes, you know, we say it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to keep oneself healthy, but it's, you're, you're the, the captain of that. You're yeah. in charge of what goes in, um, being able to understand and build your capacity for that agency Mm -hmm. it helps to have examples of seeing people that are well Mm -hmm. or people that have gone from being sick to being well and so i i I try to not have too much distance between okay so now i'm considered an expert i've been teaching for long enough and written about it it's easy to think oh you don't have any mental health issues or physical health problems and there's nothing that could be further from the truth Mm -hmm. but i try and put it pretty close to how i even got into this through my own mental health issues and through the physical trauma of being in an accident and being in chronic pain it was way down the road that any of the other childhood traumas surfaced because Mm -hmm. of other practices 
of thinking, okay, now I'm physically well and now I'm not depressed. <laughs> why, why are these, why are there other um, things in the interfering with my wellness? Hmm. What? There's more trauma. <laughs> this, this is common. Yeah. And as I said, that that's not special to my story. It's just that I, I'm the one telling the story of my own journey mm-hmm. and my deep desire to be, to be well and knowing that reality, having examples of it in my life, gradually over time, figuring out how to have access. Cause I've been through these seasons in my life of illness mentally and physically where I had resources where I've not had resources so there's been very real struggles of access to services not access to services mm-hmm. and there is a belief it is also a belief mm-hmm. it can be different mm-hmm. is there a way then you talk just about access and I often think to like I almost feel sometimes I I don't know how to say this necessarily, but sometimes I look around and see a lot of adults where we're stuck in our trauma. And do you think sometimes part of that too could be the access of, of limited access for people to, to have the therapy and the body, you know, exercises and the connections that we need? It could be, mm-hmm. it could be, but it is interesting that in this day and age, it would be rare that someone doesn't have any access at all mm-hmm. to the internet. Right. Even homeless people go to libraries to access the internet, mm-hmm. um, which I, th- I think is, is great, mm-hmm. and that there is a lot of free content out there. And you mm-hmm. might have to go through some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And as a person that provides some of that content, I try and make a good portion of mine accessible for free so that anybody can access that mm-hmm. with a computer with a computer screen and I realize that still means that some people are not able to have access but I think more and more where there's a will there's a way and and yes accessibility and not having health care for everybody mm-hmm. makes it difficult to either get the mental health care that you need or the physical health health care yeah. that you need but I also having had those access issues, the scrappiness of figuring out how can I get what I need? I'm, I gotta be well and I'm desperate to be well. And <laughs> if I don't have these resources, where is it for free? Where is it for low income? And it wasn't a dignity issue at that stage. It's like, I need to get what I need to get in order to, to be well. Yeah. And so there's the, that bit of scrappiness um, <laughs> that I really encourage people to, to figure out in order to, you know, or like the, yeah, can I make a call? Is there, can I make that one call to ask someone, how do I get access to A, B, and C, whatever it is you need access to? Mm-hmm. And I guess being a social worker was my first profession, that mm-hmm. that was part of my job as a general caseworker was figuring out how to solve problems and how to connect people to services. So there's a little bit of that in my DNA and in my yeah. training that I've, <laughs> because we know that people that are in therapy, that are therapists and counselors and social workers, we tend to be drawn to the profession because we are looking for our own healing. And I think that's conscious and subconscious. And, mm-hmm. and I was, I was one, I am, I am one. <laughs> Um, so I'm looking at the time and we're almost already coming to time, which I cannot even believe, but I ask people 
what story are you reframing for your life right now? Hmm. I think that it is possible to be well. And even though that's my main message, and even though that's what I teach, mm-hmm. our own internal understanding of that has to be enlarged and uh, challenged constantly. Mm-hmm. It's because it's easy to believe the opposite that being well is not possible because I don't have, you know, any one of it, the resources that it might take to do that, the money or the, the right. access or the, the right therapist or, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and holding it out as a possibility, I think is really important. And so that's, I don't know if that's a reframing, but I want to keep telling that story mm-hmm. that it's possible. I think it is so important and how we care for ourselves and how we are aware of ourselves is a key part of believing that we can be well and it's so common well of course we would want to be well (laughs) except I don't think we've internalized it yeah so maybe the reframing is wanting us to internalize it so we believe it to be true and we act like it is true I've also been finding as I age (laughs) that you know, upon each kind of generation, there's this new sense of healing that takes place. You know, like, I feel like we are always on this path of healing. And it's just different parts of us that are healing, you know, because we find new things. Like when I became a mom, I remember feeling like, oh, I thought I healed that part, but this it's showing up in a different way. And that needs attention or being a wife or, you know, just whatever our roles are or whatever comes our way or whatever kind of experience we might have. I feel like there's different times where healing looks different and that it shows up in ways sometimes we're, we're surprised by, but it seems like it's just a continual journey (laughs) of healing. So I don't know if you found that to be true. (laughs) Yeah. And this is not to be a discouragement because it's, I think we, we desire to get to a place where we can say you've arrived mm-hmm. and whatever that means for your health, mentally, physically, spiritually. And I think the realization that it's an ongoing journey mm-hmm. was actually liberating. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a race to be one. It's just kind of the path that we're continuously walking it's and discovering new things. Yeah. 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 So if people want to learn from you or want to get connected to you, how can they find you? And then what also, also I was curious, like what's the best way for your book to be utilized? I'll start with the, with the latter. The best way for the book to be utilized is to do the practice mm-hmm. and you can do all the talking and reading that you want, but unless you put the book down and do the practices, mm-hmm. then they're just, it's more cognitive input that doesn't resonate with the whole package yeah all of your body so that would be the first and i have a website mm-hmm. it's joannespence.com j-o-a-n-n-e spence.com and that has the book and some video content and my socials and maybe in the future I might do this radical thing where I collect emails and send out like a wellness newsletter every month. I don't know. Maybe. That is pretty radical. Uh, 
with this new thing called the internet. I know. I used to be really good <laughs> at um, collecting emails and, and connecting with people and writing has taken me away from that because it's such a focused process. Yeah. So I'm looking to get uh, to holding that out as an aspiration. Mm -hmm. So if you sign up for my ma mailing list, uh, it might be a good few months before you hear from me. And if you hear from me, maybe once a month, but I'm going to hold that out as a possibility about being well and the tools that can help us to be well together. Mm, awesome. Well, thank you, Joanne, for joining us. And I just feel like you hold a lot of wisdom and I just appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you. And I appreciate the work you are doing in the world. <laughs>